Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clennon. And you're listening to Bird's Eye by Spectacles. Welcome. If this is your first time listening to Spectacles, or Bird's Eye in particular, take a listen to the show trailer here in your podcast app or on our website at spectacles.news to learn more about what Spectacles is, what we believe, and what you can expect from this show and our other shows, Insight and Focus. It's hard to explain the world and everything that goes on in it without some kind of framework. We can't evaluate the similarities and differences of the various phenomena we see without identifying patterns that help us explain what we're looking at. Academics and philosophers develop theories that explain those phenomena, both to get a better understanding of what they're studying and to predict what might happen next. In truth, we'll never know for sure whether our theories are right or wrong, but it's usually better to have some framework than none at all. To that end, if we want to get a better sense of where international politics is headed, it's useful to turn to the different theories that academics have formulated to explain world politics. That's what we'll be doing in this episode, evaluating what three international relations theories, realism, liberalism, and constructivism, have to say about international institutions and the prospects for global peace. Last episode, if you remember, if you haven't listened to it, do. Uh, Last episode, we broke down what international institutions are and why they could be important for global peace. We ended with a preview of these three international relations theories, saying that the realists believe that international institutions are bogus and international affairs is a missile measuring contest. The liberals who say that institutions are generally working and they work best because of democracy and global capitalism. And the constructivists who say that people are malleable, institutions work, and actually we may be headed toward a single world government. And that's what we're going to be exploring in greater depth today, what these different schools of thought have to say about institutions and what we might be able to learn from them. So first, a basic premise of international relations that sort of runs through all three of these theories is that the nations of the world exist more or less in a state of anarchy. That doesn't mean that there's necessarily war of all against all at all times. I mean, if you've read Leviathan by Thomas Hobbes, that probably sounds familiar. If you haven't read Leviathan, that's fine. But it's a good example, his state of nature thought experiment. But it does mean, what anarchy does mean in in the international context is essentially that there's no overarching power that can coerce any states in the world, any nations in the world, to do something. Basically, everyone is more or less free. They're only constrained by essentially what they each can do to each other, which is in the state of anarchy. They can kill others and they can be killed themselves. Yeah. And actually, I think it's it's important to point out that each of these three theories is sort of discussing, I guess, a different way of responding to anarchy or what right. logically flows from this the, state the, of anarchy. What flows from the absence of overarching power. Right, exactly. Yeah, so the first one that we're going to talk about is realism. And it's sort of basic. These are the guys that really love anarchy. Yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it. I mean, like, the, the basic tenet of realism is that because of anarchy, states are concerned with 
their security and relative gains be those resources or power that they can secure over other states. So like if I, if I'm concerned with relative gains, if I'm gaining 10 strength and Harry gains five strength, I'm really concerned with, okay, I've gained five strength right. because Harry's next door to me. So the whole 10 thing doesn't matter at all. What matters is how much more I've gained than Harry who's next door to me because you know, he could attack me. Right, exactly. So that's what relative gains means. You're concerned with that all the time. Right. And so the idea is that in the absence of an enforcement agent and in this state of anarchy, there's nothing that can stop states from going to war and actually just the mere possibility of war. The fact that because there's no one stopping it, it's always possible. That's going to lead nations to be in constant preparation for conflict. And it turns out that makes conflict more likely, according to this theory. I don't know if Harry is going to do anything to me tomorrow or in my sleep. So as much as possible, I'm going to be setting up defensive perimeters right. and systems and you know bolstering my strength and my army right. just to make sure that you know, that one day when he finally does, I'll be ready for him. Exactly. Um, more often than not, for realists, this means this all means that world politics is zero-sum. One country's gain is another country's loss, essentially. They, the realist does not think of it in terms of, okay, let's... I don't know if you've watched Succession. This is a there are a lot of great moments here where the older dad L- Logan Roy, who's this you know, aging uh, media mogul uh, billionaire, thinks of things very zero sum. He wants to screw everyone else out of as much as he can because that means he's getting that much more than them. Right. That's how he thinks about business. Whereas kids sometimes are thinking about how actually. It's not a problem if everyone gains. I mean, pot, that that's positive sum. Everyone gains. Right. But so they're thinking, realists think of it in terms of zero sum. How much more do I gain than the other guy? Yeah. And sort of one nice example of what realism predicts will happen is something that we would call the security dilemma. And actually, this is a, a testament to how theories can be important is we see something like the security dilemma occur a lot throughout history, which is not to say that realism is like the right theory. But this is one thing that realism does tend to predict pretty well, or it's an observable phenomenon in history. And, you know, we continue to see things, right? So in the, in the most simplified possible format, let's say you take two nations that are bordering each other. State A, let's call them State A and State State B. State A develops uh, a new weapons technology. State B gets scared and then develops their own to counter it or their own kind of that weapon or something like that. State A realizes it no longer has an advantage over State B. Think about those relative gains again. So it makes more weapons to regain it. State B gets scared, makes weapons, and so on, raising the possibility of war breaking out. You can get an arms race out of that. I mean, you can talk about the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union engaged in a security dilemma with with nukes. Right, exactly. Um, Yeah, and I would say, again, like, conflict is not necessarily inherent to realism. It doesn't mean that, that, you know, it doesn't mean that we're going to be in a war of all against all at all times. I mean, if Harry and I are next door to each other and we're constantly both thinking, okay, when's he going to attack me? I'm going to build up my defenses. You could both sit there on your various sides of the fence, constantly getting ready for the other guy to attack you. Right. But it never happens because you're afraid that if you attack the person, maybe they'll beat you. Right. And they're afraid of the same thing. So you both sort of sit there just waiting for something to happen, but nothing ever does. But it's a very tenuous piece. Realists would say peace is tenuous in their world. Yeah. 
or you could even call it like a negative piece, right? In that, you yeah, know, you're because yeah. you're afraid of each That's other. That's the you're not necessarily technical going to term for yeah, it. Exactly. But just because the possibility of war is there, it's going to be an inherent feature of world politics. And it's always been that way. It was right. that way from the earliest political communities. And it's still true today. That's the, that is what realism would say. And it will be true tomorrow. It'll be true 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 yeah. years from now, and all the way into the future, as long as there are humans. I don't know if it goes that far, but basically that's the idea. So when it comes to institutions, realists don't put a lot of stock in them. Last week, you know, we talked about how there are different schools that think of institutions as having different power or roles mm-hmm. or importance. Realists don't really care much about them. Or they just think they that th- institutions are, I think we, we're, we read a couple articles. One of them was called The False Promise the of International. Yeah, I read the literature. Uh, <laughs> the False Promise of International Institutions by John Mearsheimer, who's a pretty famous realist scholar. And he said, I think something along the lines of, you can consider international institutions an intermediate variable in between sort of these other aspects of world politics. I'm not a math guy, so I don't really know what the hell you meant by that. But <laughs> well, it just means that... Well, it means in that other they, words, he also, he also said, in that same passage, I know what you're talking about. He also said essentially that institutions don't have power of their own, right? It's right. states that have armies. It's right. states that have power. Right. Institutions are really, in insofar as they're effective or meaningful, they're just manifestations of existing power dynamics. Exactly. Like you, he points to NATO as a clear example of this. Right. Right. NATO was the organizing body for the U.S. and a bunch of Western European and and Turkey powers uh, block basically posed against the Warsaw Pact, the, the the Soviet bloc for purposes of security. There was a mutual defense pact and all this. And Mearsheimer basically says it wasn't NATO that won the Cold War. It was the U.S. Right. But the U.S. also set up NATO and NATO is NATO was influential insofar as its primary backer, the United States, was powerful. Basically, right. the institution didn't really matter. It was actually the U.S. It's the states behind institutions that are really important. Right. And I mean, another sort of dimension of that that I think is kind of important that he points out is that you can have things like alliances, right, like NATO, which is a sort of mutual defense agreement. But there's always kind of going to be an incentive for partners to cheat, right? You think of these rational actors in search of their own security and their own relative gain. So they kind of have an incentive maybe to to let slip on things. And so you, you could see maybe how like the other partners in NATO tend not to cough up their money for, well, yeah, for the, mutual defense. The US didn't get a lot of defensive benefit out of it. But right. basically everyone else got a ton. Right. Um, <laughs> but it was, right. And so it, it works out in, in a way that you think of institutions work only insofar as the actors that constitute them are seeing their interests realized in the moment that's not true. You know, the institution might fall apart or it ceases to be effective. So institutions might exist, but fundamentally, as you said, Philip, they're just expressions of the existing hierarchy of power in international relations. Right. So the future of peace then for realists, if we're going to ask that question, because that's what this series of podcasts is all about. If you ask a realist, what is the future of peace? They will say... Huh? Um, Peace, the future of peace is not looking so good from their perspective. War is never going to go away. It's a constant feature of human life. It's a feature of anarchy. It's a feature of international politics inherently. The best thing, according to some realists, that you could hope for is hegemony. You know, one superpower 
approximates what an overarching enforcement agent would look like, thus sort of reducing anarchy. And you might see the historical expression of that in, for example, the United States from 1991 to, I don't know, say 2001 or 2008, pick your year that history started up again but from sorry from, sorry frankie Fook. from from 91 to some period in the 2000s the united states and maybe even still somewhat today but really during the, the golden age for for the for the united states hegemony was the 1990s and right. you could argue that the world politics was and, very 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 highly ordered at that point and yeah. more or less peaceful despite and the golden age of disney channel original movies so correlation causation i don't know but there you go um, let's move on to liberalism. <laughs> yeah, let's move on to liberalism. And before we start, a quick disclaimer. Liberalism is an IR theory. We've also talked a lot about liberal democracy on at Spectacles. In fact, that's our whole thing. Um, but liberalism as an IR theory is not quite the same thing as like liberalism as a political philosophy, although they are related and, and that'll sort of be teased out as we go on. But liberal IR theory is more focused on sort of testable observations about world politics or theories about how politics functions, as we say rather than a, like a set of values that like, you know, the freedom of the individual. Although those things are important in liberal IR theory, but it, they're sort of thinking about it from an analytical perspective rather than sort of like, again, like a sort of first principles here are values of, you know, what society should look like. So with that in mind, the basic sort of beliefs or assumptions of liberalism are that, yes, states do exist in anarchy and they are concerned, even primarily concerned for their security, but also that states' international interests are influenced by domestic politics. What do I mean by that? I mean think about it in the United States. We have multiple political parties, multiple branches of government. We've got 50 states. We have corporations. We have nonprofits. We have civil society organizations. You have the press and sort of the the mix of all of those organizations working together and against each other serves to produce at some level the interests of the United States in world politics. And that is even true in, for example, China, which also has corporations, although they're much more under the thumb of the government. So it's not necessarily the case that we're only talking about liberal democracies, although obviously you're going to get much more diversity of political thought in democracies rather than an authoritarian government like China. Although again, China has a military with what it wants to be done, and it has the Politburo, the, the Communist Party. And we have cancel culture. And we have cancel culture. <laughs> <laughs> it's the cultural revolution all over again, folks. Um, but they also do, on that point, they do believe that democracy and capitalism do liberal IR theory well. Like, they're, they're good for peace, generally, in, yes. according to liberal IR theory. Because democracies are less likely to fight wars with one another. That could be for all number of reasons, but it's a pretty consistent historical observation and trade between cap the trade that capitalism generates creates both mutual gains for these countries so they say okay yeah we're all gaining from not going to war with each other and instead trading peacefully and mutual vulnerabilities the fact that you would lose those gains right. if you went to war right so you know liberalism isn't just for democracies, but liberal IR theory does believe that democratic states are better for achieving international peace, right. essentially. And it also, I would say, believes as well, generally, that 
cooperation, more cooperation than realists think is possible, is possible at the in the international system because we can identify our shared interests. Say Philip and I are confronting a shared problem. I don't know. Say we live next to a landfill and we want to, and it smells or something or someone's not putting taking their trash. We can work together to overcome this sort of shared challenge together and we actually can both get positive sum gains. We can get absolute gains out of our interaction. So versus realism, which thinks of relative gains and zero sum politics, liberals think of it as there's a possibility for us both to gain absolutely from cooperating with each other. Right, right. So on institutions, liberal IR theory says that institutions are effective insofar as they can modify incentive structures to change behaviors. We see that with trade. The incentives are to avoid war. You know, you, you see that with democracy. The electoral incentives are to do certain things in the international sphere. Um, and institutions outside of trade and at-home domestic democracy, institutions may gain some form of legitimacy in the eyes of domestic populations, causing leaders to follow the rules or at least break them gently enough that they can make it look okay. I think in most polite circles of American society, you'll see most people think of Dick Cheney fairly critically as a sort of war criminal yeah. or war profiteer. A bad hombre, if you will. A bad hombre, to quote Mr. Donald. Not about Cheney, but... Not... <laughs> but I... I when, if you go see the movie Vice, you can see how in that, at least, I don't know how historical it is, I don't know a lot about it, but you can see how Dick Cheney is breaking all these rules all the time, but he's right. also limiting how much he breaks them because he's worried about how it's going to look. These right. international rules about how war is conducted and things like this, torture, etc. Right. He's limiting how much he breaks them, so he has a little bit of plausible deniability. So even if you don't follow the rules completely, institutions can change your incentives so that you break them less. Right. And that may be better, too. They can also institutions can also reduce the costs of trading and exchange and cooperation, as Harry pointed out. You can think of the example of intelligence sharing between the U.S. and ally countries. Cooperation becomes less costly between them because it removes information asymmetry. Everybody knows what everybody else knows. Right. So cooperation's easy. And then with organizations like the World Trade Organization, which I wrote a focus about a little while ago. We discussed it last episode. And we too. discussed it last episode, too. Um, you can have orgs that set rules for international trade and they can make trade cheaper to do because there's less risk and there's less unpredictability. So liberals would say these are good instances of institutions. You change the incentive structures, people behave differently. Right. Yeah. And so for liberals, we could say that the future of peace could be good, maybe even better than it is, maybe even better than it was in the 1990s if capitalism and democracy continue to spread and if we make institutions stronger so that they disincentivize conflict or rule-breaking rule or general bad actor, bad faith acting in the, in the international system. On the flip side of that, if information isn't well aligned, if, for example, domestic politics favors a leader being more belligerent, or if authoritarianism eclipses democracy around the world, cooperation would become more difficult. So, um, you know, on the one hand, liberals have a sort of optimism about our ability to sort of establish institutions and modes of governance that favor peace, but that's not necessarily a given. Right. The last school of international relations theory would be constructivism. 
the basic belief of constructivism is that, yes, there is anarchy, but fear for security doesn't necessarily follow logically from that anarchy. The phrase you'll often hear, which is also the title of the, the title of the paper we read for for this episode, title of a sort of seminal paper paper in constructivist yeah. IR theory. In those words, anarchy is what states make of it. Yes, anarchy exists, but how states respond to anarchy and how they behave in an anarchic state, lacking an overarching power, can vary. Right. It's not necessary that you see arms ra- arms races and things like this that realists predict you'll see happen. Yeah, I mean, and sort of the 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 sort of fundamental belief that's at work here is that interests in international politics and you know interests in the in the realist sense would be you know security, defense, making sure that you know your that your neighbor isn't getting one up on you. For liberals, interests might be sort of rational self-interest, understanding that we can improve our economic gains or the level of peace if we establish institutions. Those interests are actually products of for constructivists, those are. Right. For constructivists, those uh, interests are actually products of our identities, or the identities of, of states, of individuals, of organizations, whatever you can, whatever you want, which are actually quite malleable. They can change over time. And it's this sort of almost dialogic process that we think of as where individuals and states and social systems are constantly interacting with one another, influencing and reshaping each other over time, which means it can mean that the international system is not consigned to this sort of competitive dynamic that realism would predict, predict because we can cultivate cooperative identities and develop those over time. And that doesn't actually mean that like our identities are constantly shifting or in motion, but it, that sort of identities can become sticky, that once established, they don't just change from day to day. Once, if I come to identify myself with American democracy, it would take a lot for me to, you know, shift my viewpoint wildly to think that, for example, Chinese-style communism or Chinese-style authoritarianism is, like, the best social system, right? It, yeah. That's not something well, that happens well, at the drop of a hat. It might take you a couple weeks watching some Twitch streams, but, <laughs> um, you know, lots of, lots of people get there. So when it comes to institutions, this is basically what constructivists think. Institutions can work very well if they develop over time and people begin to identify strongly with them. Right. And I mean, they also words, don't have to work as well. That's things. It, right. it, it, it runs the whole gamut, right? If people's identities are belligerent or opposed to each other or become competitive, then you'll get a competitive world system that looks like realism. But if people develop cooperative identities, identities that, that favor cooperation or, or like, you know, view themselves as part of a larger collective, then cooperation becomes more possible. Right. Right. You can think of the European Union as a good example of a constructivist view of institutions working out or a constructivist hope for institutions working out. The EU was originally set up basically just let's pool our coal and steel to avoid war between France and Germany. And it's eventually expanded and expanded and to different countries and it's deepened and how tightly integrated economies and policy making are between these countries for for one example the eu regulates food and agriculture policies for all of its member states right so the german government doesn't get to decide stuff about food and agriculture i mean there are certain areas that they still can but it's the eu that sets those policies right so like these countries have actually delegated policy making power to an external body so this is 
an instance in which an institution has become very strong. And today, you know, there are more and more people within the EU who identify as European as part of their identity. Right. Right. And so it's a very powerful sort of institution in that way. One sort of recent point in, in, in favor of that way of looking at things is Emmanuel Macron met, I think today or yesterday, with Olaf Scholz, who's the new chancellor of Germany. And they discussed this idea of like European sovereignty. And that's Macron's been on this kick for a long time, but right. everyone's thought he was right. stupid. Yeah. And, and Olaf Scholz's predecessor, Angela Merkel, was more reticent, I think, to dive into that sort of idea of a more tightly integrated Europe. But Olaf Scholz and the parties that he's in coalition with and their government seem to be more interested in the idea. So this discussion of a, a European sovereignty suggests that there is like a European idea that maybe even transcends individual nation states that exist within the, the European Union. And you see in opinion polls, more people who live in Europe identify as European. Not everyone, obviously, but over sometimes More people than, than used to. Than used to. Yeah, so you see that they've actually come to numbers. identify with Europe as a political project, probably as a complement to their home country, but still, right? I mean, we can have multiple identities at any given time. Right, right. So for constructivists, the future of peace is sort of up in the air. It's totally possible for constructivists that we could get world peace and one day have actually world government. So long as people see each other as friendly rather than threatening. Right. I think what you mean, uh, see each other as, as friendly rather than threatening is this notion that, you know, we don't necessarily have to, if we encounter a stranger in the forest, right, say we're, you know, in, this, in some hypothetical state of nature, we encounter a stranger in the forest, um, we don't necessarily know what their actions are going to be. And if you do something that appears non-threatening at first, the other person might recognize that's not threatening. And that could be through repeated interactions, the development of a cooperative partnership in which you identify not just as like allies, you know, getting rational, you know, uh, working together to hunt and get food, but as actual friends. On the other hand, if right. you make a threatening gesture when you come across a stranger and they perceive it as threatening, then you might become en enemies, right? The basic idea is that your identities sort of play off of each other towards or away from cooperation. And either one can happen. There is a sort of implicit or not even implicit, but explicit assumption in constructivism that we are to a significant extent blank slates, right? Our, we don't. There's not necessarily a human nature that uh, defines the limits of what we can do. Everything is kind of possible right? for good and bad. Right. And I think it's important for constructivists that one of the key elements of that future of, of peace is that for liberals, you might see certain kinds of alliances that are pretty strong. For realists, you might see certain kinds of alliances that are sort of tenuous. But in both situations, they're grounded in gain, some right. kind of gain. For constructivists... The future of peace isn't grounded necessarily in either relative or absolute gain, but if you simply identify as a with a certain community, a larger community, if multiple states identify with each other, even if there's no sort of rational or material gain associated with sort of integrating with each other, right? simply because they identify with each other, they're going to cooperate right. and you because they think that it's the right thing to do. Right. I, 
I hope I'm making good sense of no. That. It's sort of a complicated. This theory, is the most so. complicated one. Yeah, um, it's very tricky. Realism is nice and simple, easy to understand. Liberalism that's why it's is right. also <laughs> pretty nice and easy to understand. I mean, that's a, there's another there's an aspect here. We'll probably discuss our sort of our own thoughts on these in a second. But I'm putting in here is like in terms of predictive power, right? I mean, realism. You've got a couple basic tenets, and you can say, all right, we should be able to see this pretty observably. Constructivism cares a lot about the history of interactions between different people and the you know where they are coming from relative power differentials within a society and how they people feel about each other how they identify people can have a complex sort of network of identities within themselves and in some ways maybe it's good at explaining certain things if you take the you know a long historical view and look at these kinds of things but, but it if, might have less predictive power if you admit that things are very 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 complicated <laughs> right and influenced right. by very 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 many factors well, then it becomes very, very hard to predict what's going to happen next right. or to offer a prediction. And then if it's very hard to offer those predictions, it's going to be also very hard for them to be right. Right. Whereas realists, few factors to consider. Okay, let's take who, how strong is this guy? How strong is this guy? What are their sort of interests in this region? Take Ukraine. There's a lot of realists commentating that this is, this is going to happen. Biden should be doing this. Tell Vladimir Putin, like, you know, you don't want to mess with this situation. Right. Uh, make that realist show of strength. And so there's an appeal of realism there. It's simple, it's straightforward, and that feels good. You know, maybe it's also right. I'm not a super expert, but I have my opinion. But on that note, that's what each of these theories predicts about international relations or doesn't predict and international institutions. And peace. And the future of peace. But which of these theories gets things the most right. Harry, why don't you start? What do you think about these three? I'm curious. Yeah, I am... I don't know if it came through at all, but I'm kind of partial to sort of constructivism if we put some boundaries on it, basically. Maybe that's more like a strong liberalism where legitimacy and comes through and identities are, are formed around institutions because we sort of rationally understand how they work. What, is, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean that... For example, whereas liberalism suggests that, you know, we establish institutions which alter our incentive structures, I think we could say we establish institutions which alter our identities to some extent, and that actually shapes how we interact with each other, right? So I think it is pretty clearly true that institutions alter how actors see themselves and how they see each other in international politics. And by actors, I mean states leaders, individuals, but I'm just using the word actors as sort of a catch-all. But it is, I think, to me also obvious that unless there's some kind of force behind institutions or, for example, let's say extremely salient rewards, like econo economic rewards for the EU, that we can't necessarily expect them to work very well. In other words, I don't think people just are going to say, well, we'll just establish these totally consensual, peaceful institutions from nothing and all just kind of get along with each other. And I know that that's, that's not doing justice to constructivism as a theory of international relations, but I think that that's sort of, if I can identify and, and maybe reduce it a little bit too much, I think that that sort of explains the problem is I think you, institutions, to some extent, do require coercion. They do require rewards um, to actually work. And once they have those, they can alter people's identities. Right. But those things are kind yeah, of a necessary yeah, an example, precondition. example might be the establishment of any country in the world. Right. Uh, started with force, but some develop over time to people identify patriotically with that right. country. And you don't have to force them to follow the law because actually they want to, but force still plays a role. Right. 
Right. I mean, it's it basically is that sort of what you're yeah, saying. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm that saying. Sort of development. Yeah, right. And the, the fact of the matter, and, and the reason why I think this is true to some extent, is it's just kind of difficult to get around the fact that none of us want to die, and almost all of us have the capacity to kill each other. Right. And that maybe makes me sound like I'm well. Like Harry a, doesn't a have the capacity to kill me, but um, <clears throat> that's what you think. So you sort of put these two things together, right? I think there end up being some limits on just how much our identities actually can be altered. Right. But I prefer to think about it like that's not the be all end all of politics. I don't want to think about, oh, because there might be some war of all against all, that means that our the possibilities of human life are necessarily constrained. I think, you know, there's a case for sort of optimism that I think aligns with constructivism in which we actually can build a better world, which is not unlimited. And we have to have realistic expectations right. about what right. we can build. But I do think that you can't go walking over to Vladimir Putin in, in, in the, in the red square with a, with a handful of flowers, right. And uh, a food basket <laughs> and expect everyone to be happy. Right. It doesn't <laughs> quite work like that. And then constructivists would agree. I mean, things are right. sticky, right? Right. It's right. not, it's not, those things don't change on the day-to-day, -day, but I do think there are some limits to the extent. We actually talked about this in a past episode about myth. We talked about constructivism. A great series. Um, our political myth, the final episode about whether or not there could be something like WorldGov. If you go um, listen to that final episode, buckle up. It's yeah. a long one and it's wide-reaching, <laughs> yeah. but it's 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 definitely interesting. It was a lot of fun to record. Listen so, to it. yeah, I think, you know, constructivism with, with some limits. I think we're not that far apart. I think maybe my outlook is slightly more pessimistic than yours. I guess I don't think it's hard to believe that international relations and state behavior can be motivated by things other than security, like liberals and constructivists would say. The 90s to today, as you mentioned, are good examples of the U.S. often behaving with a greater concern for absolute positive sum relations right. than relative gain. I mean, I wrote a whole paper on how we admitted China to the WTO and to permanently normalize trade relations. Not much concern for, okay, are they going to gain more of this, more out of this than we do? Because, I mean, if you look at today, clearly they have gained more out of it than we have those trade relations. You know, John Mearsheimer wrote a piece recently where he was like, we shouldn't have let China into the WTO. Well, John Mearsheimer, I did it. When did he do it? Did I write before About him? the same time as you. All right. Well, we'll say maybe mine came out a day before. We weren't behaving with much of a concern for relative gain. It was absolute gain. So... I think that's not surprising that you can see states behave that way because given like besides severely antisocial people, I don't think I've ever met anyone whose sole desire was personal security and was willing to dispose of anyone or any relationship available to them to achieve any relative gain possible. Right. Right. You'd have to just be like some kind of psychopath. People do have higher desires than security. And I think states like are like people in that way basically the way i think about it is it's sort of like maslow's hierarchy of needs i think i agree with the realist that at the bottom of everything is security i think it's hard to deny that i think even most constructivists would accept something like that right but once you're secure you know you can do all kinds of things you can start identifying as an american as a european as like a global citizen but i do think that security has to stay there for those identities to be built and for any sort of broader understanding of society and human flourishing 
to be realized, obviously you have to have security. I think as many identities as we have and everyone's different, you can't change the fact that what Harry said, that everyone has an identity, which is we are mortal and nobody wants to die. Not me. Not me. Probably not you, listener. But leave a comment on this on this article. Follow the link in the show notes. We've got a link to this episode page on our website. Leave a comment. Let us know. Do you think constructivism, realism, liberalism, who gets it right? What are your what's your thinking on this matter? We'd be interested to hear from people or tweet at us at Spectacles Media for sure. We'd love to hear your thoughts. But next week we're going to be back and we're going to be talking about very directly the future of peace. It's sort of been a side sideline issue theme of each of these past two episodes. But next week we're going to focus just on what's going on in the world right now. You know, what's going on with Taiwan? What's going on with Ukraine? What's going on with other major big events and developments in global security and geopolitics right now? And where does it look like we're headed? Does it look like we're headed to the world of the constructivists? Or does it look like we're heading back to some kind of realist uh, hellscape? Who knows? But, you know. Listen and find out. Listen and find out. <laughs> That's all for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and share this episode with your friends or on social media. If you'd like to listen to each new article of Focus and Insight read aloud, follow the link in the notes for Spectacles Out Loud. If you'd like to make a comment on the episode that you just heard, there's a link to our website, also in the notes, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter, if you haven't already, to receive a new way of seeing politics in your inbox five days a week. And find us on Twitter, at Spectacles Media. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks. <laughs>